Hello, and welcome to the Starfield bonus episodes. I'm your host, Hannah Marker. As part of our partnership with Astronomy State of the Art, we bring you Q&A sessions with Dr. Chris Impey. In these episodes, Dr. Impey answers live questions brought to us by our listeners, talking about topics in astronomy, what's happening in the astronomy community, the news of the day, and much more. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today for our live session. I'm going to hand this over to uh, Professor Chris Impey, who will be talking, um, or who will be introducing the session and getting us started. Okay, welcome everyone to another live session for our online classes and MOOCs. Um, I'm still in London, will be for another few weeks. Uh, it's a very cold and rainy place in June here. Um, but astronomy out there, the skies are clear, the universe is large, there's plenty of questions to be answered, so the floor is open. All right, thank you, Chris. Um, our first question is from Chandran Pushpartnam, who asks, do gravitational waves lose energy as they travel through space like electromagnetic waves? Uh, yes, gravitational waves lose energy. Um, they're propagating through three-dimensional space. Uh, and so they are, you know, weaker as they travel away from their source. But there's a really critical distinction between electromagnetic waves and gravitational waves, uh, which accounts for the surprising fact that the black hole mergers detected by LIGO uh, a few years ago and about a dozen since then are at enormous distances. The idea that we can see merging black holes at distances of a billion, billion and a half light years is amazing to most people because these are small objects the size of massive stars. So when electromagnetic waves uh, propagate through space, their intensity goes down as the inverse square uh, because that's the intensity in, in uh, electromagnetic theory. Intensity is the square of the amplitude of the wave and intensity is what you measure and that goes down as the inverse square. And that's true for the strength of the gravitational force as well. But gravitational wave is an amplitude. Uh, when you measure a gravitational wave passing through an object, it's the displacement in space-time. So it's an amplitude, not an intensity. And so it actually goes down linearly with distance. And that's a huge difference. In other words, if an electromagnetic wave between two sources, one was 10 times further away, the electromagnetic intensity will be 100 times weaker. But for a gravity wave, it would only be 10 times weaker. And that much more slow uh, degradation of intensity or strength of the signal with distance accounts for the fact that LIGO is seeing very far into the universe for these special events. Hi, Chris. Um, the next question is from Brandon Kelly, who is on with us live, who would like to know, how can they be sure the gravitational waves detected by LIGO were from black holes merging? Could uh, the signal have come from some other unknown phenomena? How can they be so 100% sure uh, just from the evidence that we have? So they, there's always some degree of doubt. People, you know, always need to remember that science does not approach nature with a view to certainty. It just with a high probability of explanation. And in this case, we have a very high probability of explanation. The reason the LIGO scientists are, are very confident they've detected gravity waves from merging black holes is that the signature they detect, and in fact the signature they filter what is mostly noise to pull out of the noise, is very, very specific. Um, if you've probably seen the, uh, the sort of increasing these crescendo uh, plots 
of the intensity of the gravity waves, which turned into an audible signal of frequency is in the few hundred hertz range. So audible, and they call them chirps in that sense, and a crescendo in frequency. Um, that exactly, that pattern, that rising crescendo, and, and then rapid dropping off with a small ringing afterwards, that's exactly what is predicted in numerical and gravitational theory and in models and simulations of black holes merging. And it's really quite particular to those objects. It would not be the same thing for neutron stars merging and certainly not normal stars merging, which wouldn't produce gravity waves of any strength that can be detected. So it's the in incredible specificity of the signal. It's quite peculiar and quite specific. And the exquisite match to pure theory and to simulations that give the astronomers a lot of confidence that that's what they've detected and that they know what they're detecting. All right, Chris, thank you very much. The next question comes from Ilsa Martin, who is on with us live, who asks, why won't the James Webb telescope be serviceable from Earth? It seems very risky. Uh, it is risky. The James Webb Space Telescope is a, you know, eight billion, probably close to ten billion dollar gamble by the time it's launched. It's not a gamble in the sense that the technology behind it is is proven technology. The mirrors are exquisite. The telescope assembly has mostly been tested. It had a few late problems. The instruments work, and the whole thing has now been put together and tested uh, on Earth before launch. So it's not risky in that sense. The reason it had to be put at a Lagrange point, so basically a distance of a million kilometers from the Earth, very far from the Earth, in an unserviceable location, is that this telescope needs to be in a very quiet part of space. Uh, low Earth orbit, where the Hubble Space Telescope is, maybe 250 miles up, is a kind of dirty astronomical environment. There are radiation backgrounds, there's Earth glow, obviously the sun has to be avoided. Um, there's air glow, even that high up, they, uh, there's sort of diffuse, very, very diffuse remnants of the atmosphere that cause emission. Uh, and also in the orbital circles where the Hubble is going, there's space debris, sometimes that space debris heats up, sometimes it glows. So the Hubble Space Telescope is not in a very clean astronomical environment for, for noise and signals. James Webb is a mostly infrared telescope, so very sensitive to, to low temperature noise or heat. And so it needed to be as far from the Earth, which is a heat source, as possible, and as far from the atmosphere, which is a source of heat, and space debris, which is also hot. So it's a sensible place to put a telescope like this. Uh, it's also a quasi-stable position where very modest amounts of energy can be used to keep the telescope at a, at a fixed location relative to the Earth, Moon, and Sun. So it's a natural place to put satellites. So the WMAP satellite, which many people are aware of that did incredible work on the microwave background, was also at a Lagrange point, and, and now a handful of other missions. So it's not only the James Webb. Uh, it is unserviceable, though. That's very much further than any astronauts can go. Astronauts have only ever been into low Earth orbit, except for the moon missions. Uh, and of course, this is even further than the moon. So. It has to work, basically. Uh, otherwise, it's $10 billion space junk. All right. Thank you, Chris. Our next question is from Richard Elkins, who's on with us live, who asks, what are the odds of finding a life form based on another covalent element, such as silicon? Uh, the odds could be good if we knew how to look for it. So uh, silicon it sits in the same column of the periodic table. Uh, so its electronic structure is analogous to carbon. Uh, 
which means it has the ability to bond with other elements. Carbon is uh, promiscuous, if you like, as an element, and it, and it forms compounds with many other elements, and of course itself, meaning hydrocarbon chains, can be enormously complex and long. That's the basis of organic chemistry. Silicon has similar properties, not identical though. Uh, compounds that you form with silicon can be large and complex, but in the end, uh, chemically in detail, they're less stable than carbon-based compounds. So silicon chemistry is not quite as supple or sturdy as carbon-based chemistry. That doesn't mean it's implausible that complex silicon-based chemistry could have led to some strange form of biology. So chemists and biochemists try to keep an open mind. And it would be a good second bet if you wanted to find life that was completely different from terrestrial life. At the moment, none of the putative life detection experiments do anything around searching for silicon-based biochemistry. At the moment, we naturally want to look for the thing that we know exists, which is carbon-based biochemistry. Uh, and that means life detection experiments, when they start getting good and going to places like Mars and hopefully other places, uh, will be looking for uh, nucleic acids and essentially looking for the sort of the toolkit of biology on Earth based on carbon. So it's not to say that silicon-based biochemistry is impossible or doesn't exist. It's just that it's very early days in astrobiology, and so we, we've not got to the point of looking for it or actually knowing how to look for it very well. All right, thank you, Chris. Um, Dee Watson, who is on with us live, would like to know if it is possible that the speed of light has slowed over time. Um, it's an interesting question, uh, and it's part of a larger um, research agenda in physics, which is to see if any of the fundamental constants that we now measure in the lab very accurately have evolved over cosmic time. That would include the speed of light, the Planck constant, the fine structure constant, other, you know, these are the fundamental constants of nature around which other calculations and quantities that apply to subatomic matter are derived. There's no sign of that, of any evolution in these quantities over cosmic time, uh, but it's actually very hard to do an experiment to test changes in the speed of light. Uh, we receive light from different parts of the universe, and then we assume the speed of light to calculate a distance that it would have traveled, uh, and therefore the distance to objects with certain redshifts. Now, if the speed of light was varying over cosmic time, that would affect those calculations. The trouble is we're using those calculations to test a cosmological model. Uh, so we need some independent verification of the cosmological model to use that data to then show that the speed of light had varied. This is just a circular argument. So at the moment, there's no simple way to test for the speed of light varying. Uh, also, there are no really good physical theories that have that as prediction. I mean, anything can happen, of course, in nature and in physics. But there, you have to have a reason to expect the speed of light might vary over cosmic time or maybe with distance from the Earth. And there's no physical theory that predicts it. So it's sort of a niche that um, is not getting a lot of attention at the moment. All right. Our next email is from Robert Brady, who sent an email asking um, that about something similar to the Northern Lights has been reported on Mars, yet Mars does not have a magnetic field. So how is that possible? It's a much more subtle effect than the Northern Lights. The Northern Lights um, are, of course, um, caused by the interaction between cosmic rays, solar radiation, 
and the magnetosphere of the Earth. So uh, high-energy particles coming into the upper atmosphere, interacting with um, the magnetic field and the ions in the upper atmosphere because there's a lot of energy there, so the electrons are stripped off the atoms, and that uh, therefore glows. And the colors are just due to the different chemical elements that exist in the upper atmosphere, mostly oxygen, of course. Um, Mars doesn't have the same thing going on, but its atmosphere, while thin, is 1% of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and so cosmic rays that impinging on the Mars atmosphere will cause excitation and ionization of the carbon mostly carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and lead to some air glow. So there is a, a subtle air glow expected just from interactions with cosmic rays. What's missing, of course, is the, is the complex structure that's imprinted on this by the magnetic field of the Earth, where these particles spiral along magnetic field lines and the Earth's north and south poles, uh, but Mars doesn't have the same behavior. So that you can get ionized interactions between cosmic rays from the sun and the atmospheric particles on Mars that will lead to some uh, very feeble form of air glow. Not quite as good as an aurora, though. All right, uh, we have another Mars question from one of our live viewers. Um, Prabir Adhikari asks, is it true that if a person stands on the surface of Mars, he will experience tremendous difference of temperature between head and foot due to the lack of oxygen or air? Uh, I don't think that's technically true. I mean, the Martian atmosphere is thin. Mars is very cold. Um, the atmosphere, you know, in principle, the atmosphere could conduct heat away from the surface and radiate it out into space, but that's not going to make a gradient that's a substantial gradient over the two meters of, a, of the human height. So I think there's no extreme gradient, but there is, of course, radiation of heat from the surface. Uh, straight out into space. It's not mediated or buffered by the atmosphere because the atmosphere is so thin. So maybe that's what the question is alluding to, the fact that there is a sort of thermal flow from the irradiated surface of Mars out into space, and a person you know, would be witness to that and would be able to measure it. All right, so the next question is from a live viewer. Saddam Wazir asks, since dark matter is not ordinary matter and it doesn't interact with ordinary matter, how is it possible to detect it with a detector made of ordinary matter? Yeah, good question. Um, so it doesn't, it, it does not that it doesn't interact with normal matter at all. So just to clarify that statement, dark matter is a particle, we think, a subatomic particle. And so, of course, it has mass. And so it does exert the force of gravity as normal matter does. So just even though that's a very tiny force, uh, dark matter and normal matter both have gravity, and they would have gravity, uh, a large chunk of dark matter would interact with a large chunk of normal matter with a gravitational force. What dark matter does not have, we think, is electromagnetic coupling. So it, it doesn't couple to electromagnetic radiation. Um, and that means it doesn't scatter light, it doesn't absorb light, it doesn't emit light. And so we can't look for it through electromagnetic radiation. But dark matter is a particle. And so the dark matter experiments that are mostly based on the Earth and positioned in deep mines are using the mechanical effects of dark matter particle collisions with normal matter. So in practice, we hope, the way dark matter will be detected is by those dark matter particles actually just colliding 
as particles with normal particles, just a mechanical thing. And that mechanical um, collision in a, a very pure semiconductor, for example, or something like a cleaning fluid, a very pure liquid, either detector, um, leads to a signal. Either the, the collision can either create a phonon, which is a sort of analogous to a sound wave, or it can create uh, radiation just from the deposition of energy. And that's the signal that's being looked for in these direct detection experiments. So dark matter we detect uh, by gravity on very large scales, and on the tiny scales where the individual particles are concerned, we actually just look for collisions with normal matter. All right, another one of our live viewers would like to know, if you could send a science mission to anywhere in the solar system with budget as no issue, where would you go and why? I think, uh, along with a number of my colleagues at the Lunar and Planetary Lab who think about this a lot of the time, and they wish, of course, they had more money to fund the missions they can dream of, I would probably send uh, go back to Titan. So Titan is, is the large uh, moon of Saturn that has a nitrogen atmosphere, so made of the same stuff our atmosphere is made of, and actually with twice the pressure at the Earth's surface at its surface. So it's a strikingly similar atmosphere to the Earth. It's a very cold world, of course, that far from the sun. And l the liquid oceans on Titan are ethane, methane, mixed with a little ammonia and a little water. Uh, and so that would be a fascinating place to send a mission. At the moment, we've had orbiters, of course, around the Saturn system, Cassini most notably. Um, and Cassini made a number of flybys of Titan. And then the Huygens lander sent back data, just about half an hour data, and that's almost 15 years ago. And we haven't been back since. So if I had unlimited money, and it doesn't need to be unlimited, but it would be three or four billion dollars, I would send a, a very ambitious mission to Titan that would do life detection, that would, uh, for instance, there are designs for dirigible-type technologies that would sort of hover around the, the little moon and drop, uh, you know, from the dirigible would drop submersibles into these liquid bodies of water and do various chemical and potential biological testing in, in more than one of the Titan lakes and take some years to do that. That kind of exploration would be extremely exciting. It's not really uh, funded, it's not impossible, and it would take 10 or 15 years to execute, so it's, it's quite a long-term mission. All right, thank you, Chris. Our next question is from Kevin Kent Vincent, who is on with us live, who asks, what are your thoughts on the accumulating space trash and its effects on Earth-based astronomical observations and also the stuff that was in the news recently with the new satellites, which aren't space trash yet? Right. Um, space debris is a, is a huge problem. Um, NASA sponsors meetings to talk about it and try and find remedies pretty much every year. They're international science meetings about it uh, pretty much every year. So it's getting a lot of attention. Uh, there are not a lot of easy remedies because the stuff that's out there in low Earth orbit has been put there over the length of the space age, basically 60 years. And in particular in the last 30 years as we've launched many, many satellites. And the satellites, of course, are getting smaller. And occasionally the satellites collide with each other or the mission or the objects degrade or hit by incoming meteors or micrometeorites and, and split apart. So there's just an overall tendency for uh, the low Earth orbit to be a grinder that just produces more and more small bits of debris. 
So as it is, as we've seen in the news from now, from time to time, the International Space Station has an alert where a piece of debris comes close to it and the astronauts have to take cover in the safest place in the space station. That happens basically every few months. Um, space stations in a fairly high orbit. And that problem is only going to get worse. So low Earth orbit is, is kind of a dangerous place. The material is so thinly distributed in three-dimensional space that it's, there's no single or simple remedy to get rid of it. Um, there's no magnet, magnetic sort of sweeping technology that you could imagine to sweep it up. It is mostly metal. Um, again, the distances are just too vast. So all the remedies that have been considered are just extremely expensive and people still would rather put money into new missions than to cleaning up after old missions. Uh, so there's no actual simple answer to this one. As far as affecting astronomy, it's not a big effect on astronomy yet. Uh, the new um, set of microsatellites that Elon Musk is proposing will, of course, lead to uh, light pollution, a modest amount, but a significant amount of light pollution. And people have understood what that will be, and if astronomers have got worried about it and voiced their concern. Uh, unfortunately, in this case, commerce is going to dictate what happens, and I don't think the astronomers' concerns will stop that fleet of microsatellites from being launched. So um, ground-based observing will be impacted, not dramatically, but it will be a measurable effect. All right, thank you, Chris. The next question is from Thomas Pernett, who is on with us live, who asks, what is your personal view on the Fermi paradox? Uh, my view, first of all, the Fermi paradox, which some people do not say is formally a paradox, but it's just a question, where are they, um, is, is a profound issue in astrobiology. It's, it's not a trivial question to consider or to answer. Um, the reason it's considered a paradox is that all that we know about the evolution of life suggests that life on Earth is not going to be unique. And if life on Earth is not unique, it's also unlikely that we're the most advanced uh, version of life in the universe. And if we're not, then the logical question comes up, well, where are the more advanced versions of us or situations where biology got even more advanced? And since they would fairly easily travel through interstellar space, it's logical to suppose that some of them may have traveled through space and then we should have seen evidence of their existence or they would have visited. Hence the question, where are they? So that's the inception of the question or the paradox. Uh, my personal inclination is to believe that intelligent life, life that can create machines and artificial intelligence and travel through space, is really rare. I don't think life is rare. I, don't th I think biology forms quite readily on many planets, uh, but it stays primitive or simple uh, because it has obstacles to evolution, there isn't enough time, the environment's not right, uh, there are various difficult branching points that lead to complex and intelligent life forms, all, all of the above. And if that's the case, then intelligent life in the universe could be very much rarer than microbial life. And if that's the case, then there's no paradox, there's no question, because it's just we're fairly isolated in our sector of the galaxy from other intelligent creatures. And, and space is big, and the odds of them having traversed it to make themselves known to us or to visit of us would be very low. So that's rather mundane and disappointing, but that's my personal inclination on this one. All right. Thank you, Chris. Our next question is from Angelo Moro, who's on with us live, who asks, if dark matter 
um, only interacts with regular matter via gravity, um, are there any other forces that could interact with matter that we might be able to detect? So maybe dark energy. Well, it's an interesting speculation. So um, at the moment, we're just ruling things out. So dark matter uh, exerts gravity. That's how we knew it existed. It bends light, of course, because mass bends light. And so we saw it through lensing. Uh, we saw it by the way it shapes galaxies and holds them together when the normal matter would be insufficient to do so. And so it does indeed interact by gravity but and does not interact by electromagnetic radiation. Uh, we don't know if dark matter and dark energy have any way of interacting. And, and it seems not because dark matter is a, is a physical entity, probably a subatomic fundamental particle, whereas dark energy is some phenomenon of the vacuum of space causing space-time expansion to accelerate. So they're very different entities, and it's not obvious they would have any way of interacting. So at the moment, we're, we're quite limited in our ability to diagnose dark matter, because really, as mentioned in the previous question, we have these experiments designed to look for the collision of dark matter particles with normal particles, which happens very rarely, um, and that's our best way of detecting it. We don't know of its interactions with other forms of energy. All right, our next question is from Styles Hootwall, who's on with us live, who asks, how can we prove the existence of multiverses if we can't even exit our own universe? And if real, could we travel between different universes? Right. Um, I'm a bit of a skeptic on the multiverse idea. It's a hypothesis that arises out of the fact that in the Big Bang Theory, tracing it as far back as possible, our universe apparently emerged as a quantum event because at one point the universe was as small as a subatomic particle and the energy was such that it has to be considered as a sort of quantum creation. Um, out of that idea comes the possibility of other space-times separate from ours, parallel if you like, to ours, with different physical properties within those space-times. Um, it's a hypothesis that has not yet been tested, and it might not ever be possible to test it. Because by definition, we can only observe to our horizon. We have a limit to our vision in our universe based on the distances we can see in the time that light has traveled since the Big Bang. And so we can't see regions beyond that. And that's just in our own space-time. Other space-times, really, we have no way of even understanding how we would detect them. Some people have suggested, and it's again speculation on top of speculation, that gravitational waves might leave imprints between the various universes in a multiverse. But there's no concrete theory to predict the strength of those signals or, the, or to make a unique prediction of what they would look like so we could test it. So at the moment, I'd say the multiverse hypothesis is sort of metaphysics, maybe philosophy, but not pure science. And I don't think it's testable at the moment and may never be. Uh, thank you. Um, our next question is from Saturni, who's on with us live, who would like to know, what is a white hole? A white hole is a sort of uh, hypothetical counterpart to a black hole. Uh, that is the, under the hypothesis that a black hole is a pinched off piece of space time that might hypothetically connect to another part of the universe. So space time sort of a, a portal, if you like, between different, very different physical locations by the space-time being curved and pinched together so that's a white hole at one end and a black hole at the other end. So things going into the black hole and coming out of the black hole. 
can over the white hole. So you can imagine that symmetry. Um, so that's the hypothesis of a white hole. But our universe is very smooth. It's very linear. And so there's no evidence that black holes are pinched off together with another region of space-time such that you can move from one region of space-time to another through the black hole and out of the white hole. There's no indication that that happens in our universe. So it's a pure hypothetical construct, the white hole. And, and as for whether it's testable, well, it could be testable. If we saw energy emanating from a region of intense gravity where there was no plausible physical mechanism for that energy coming out, then we might be looking at something like a white hole, but nobody's seen that yet in astrophysics. All right, our next question is from Alejandro Torres, who's on with us live, who asks, if the possibility exists that microbial life exists on Mars and we manage to study it, could it lead us to contract diseases or something that could make us sick? Um, that's a real concern. If Mars has life, especially if it has existing life, it has fossilized life from a billion years ago, then it really doesn't matter. It's not a pathogen uh, that can affect us at all. It's just a fossil. But if there is life still on Mars, and it would have to be under the surface in aquifers or underground because uh, really uh, microbes cannot survive the surface with the almost perfect vacuum and cosmic rays and UV radiation, if that life is found, then yes, we would have to worry about uh, if it has the same biological basis then uh, the, and it's microbial. I mean, it could be bacteria and of course it could be viruses. Viruses are not viable on their own, but they live symbiotically with bacteria. So if we find Martian bacteria, then there could of course be Martian viruses and there could be Martian pathogens, sort of analogs to the prions that we have on the earth, which are the folded proteins that wreak havoc with things like Jacob Creutzfeldt disease, uh, mad cow disease, as it's known in the animals that get it. Um, you know, these are scary possibilities from another form of life on Mars. And so extreme caution will be taken uh, if we get to the point of digging under the surface and looking for and then potentially finding microbes. Uh, obviously, they will never be brought back to the Earth if there's any doubt about what their effect on the Earth might be. The astronauts will be protected and will have various ways of sterilizing themselves before they go back into their habitat. Uh, so really high levels of precaution uh, will be taken when we potentially encounter life on Mars. All right, thank you, Chris. Our next question is from, again, Richard Elkins, who is interested um, in Titan and has a follow-up question. Um, Given that some life on Earth thrives in methane on the seafloor, could Titan be a place to find methane or ethane-based life? Um, yes, there. Are, I mean, there have been methanogen microbes. In fact, the early history of microbial life on the Earth had a phase when, uh, before photosynthesis evolved, when uh, life when life was methanogenic, which is to say, it had a metabolism based on methane. Uh, methane's a trace gas on the Earth and in the Earth's oceans and even at hydrothermal vents, uh, but it's a significant potential energy source, chemical energy source. So yes, um, since Titan has ethane and methane, uh, it's entirely possible that it harnesses methane as an energy source if, if life potentially exists on Titan, and it could do it in a very analogous way to the way that life on Earth has done it. 
But the other, otherwise, the chemistry of the Titan lakes is very different from the Earth. So the way the biochemistry evolves and looks and its configuration and its design and its molecular processes will be really very different from the Earth. All right. Uh, our next question is from Anita Kinpam, who asks, if the universe is expanding, is it creating new matter into space or is the space-time stretching? It's generally presumed the latter, that the, the expansion of the universe is just the stretching of space-time. Um, going back in the history of cosmology, um, before the Big Bang was accepted and before the evidence for the Big Bang became conclusive, there was a rival theory called the steady-state theory. Uh, the steady-state theory was really proposed by Fred Hoyle and Tom Gold. Um, because they aesthetically didn't like the idea of a Big Bang. They thought it was kind of crazy to just spontaneously create a universe of 100 billion galaxies from nothing instantly. And and it's kind of an outrageous idea, it's true. And so to get around that, they, and, and to accept Hubble's expanding universe, they hypothesized that the voids of intergalactic space were just spontaneously creating matter at a very low rate. And because space is large and the mean density of matter is so low, you only have to create, you know, one new hydrogen atom or proton uh, per year per many cubic meters for their theory to work. And so you'd have constant density, creation of new matter, then the universe gets bigger and bigger. They call this the perfect cosmological principle because in the steady state theory, the universe looks the same at any place and also at any time. Uh, whereas in the Big Bang, obviously, the universe is very different early when the universe was hot, small, and dense. Um, so that's a, that's a sort of mode, the steady state theory, like as the question implies, where matter is being created in the vacuum of space. At the moment, we don't think that's happening, however. In our expanding universe, as objects move further and further apart, they are literally just being carried uh, by the expanding envelope or container of space-time. All right, thank you, Chris. Our next question is from Sem Vandervecht, who asks, how long will it take for the Earth to become uninhabitable if it keeps warming up at such a fast rate and we don't do anything to prevent it? Well, that's a, a very tricky question because, of course, the models are just really not good enough. In the long astronomical future, uh, regardless of what we do with our, our impact on the Earth's environment and climate, um, the sun will gradually run hotter as it gets older and that will increase the Earth's temperature. And so in about half a billion years, well before the sun runs out of fuel, um, the biosphere will be hot enough that, that life on Earth will be extremely challenged everywhere. That's just a natural consequence of astrophysics on the long time scale. But we of course are impacting the Earth's climate and temperature on a short time scale. The carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased by 30 or so percent in the industrial era to about 450 parts per million. Uh, and that's a level which, if continued, will lead to temperature rise of a few degrees in the next 20 years or so. What happens after that is very hard to tell. Uh, global warming and the greenhouse effect is, in principle, a positive feedback loop, where the more carbon dioxide you put in the atmosphere, the more heat is trapped which accelerates the process. That's what we think happened to Venus long ago. So um, if we go beyond a couple of degrees of warming in the next few decades and things don't turn around, then we may be looking at changes in temperature of 10, 20 degrees over centuries. 
which would really be devastating for life on Earth, if not fatal. Okay, the next question is from Chandran Pushpartnam, who asks, <clears throat> excuse me, who's on with us live, who asks, will a Dyson sphere around Earth limit astronomers from doing optical astronomy? Um, a Dyson sphere around the Earth, yes, it would be very limiting. It would be also be an incredible construction. So a Dyson sphere, uh, to recap, is a, is a concept uh, really from science fiction of a civilization that learns how to trap much more of the radiation from their star than they naturally receive. So we receive about one billionth of the sun's radiation because the Earth, at the large distance it is and the size it is, just intercepts one part in a billion of the sun's radiation, which flows in all directions. Uh, a Dyson sphere around the sun would be a way of trapping the radiation from the entire sun and presumably beaming it back to the Earth to give the Earth much more than that one part in a billion that it naturally gets. Uh, it's not clear why you would want to build a Dyson sphere around the Earth, an energy-trapping sphere, um, except maybe to trap the heat that radiates away from the Earth and recycle it somehow, so as a way of making the Earth more efficient in its use of energy. Uh, but I think the cost of doing that, of making a physical construction that is essentially the size of the surface area of the Earth, a vast area, it is really implausible. So I, I, I don't see a Dyson sphere around the Earth as being any kind of a plausible uh, construction. All right, Chris, the next question comes from Saturni, who's on with us live, who asks, can there be a quark star? Um, the idea of quark matter is, is well posed in physics. Um, so some dense remnant stars, this is not something that can happen in a star like the Sun or a normal star just doing its fusion process because the densities, even in the core, are too low. But in advanced states of stellar evolution where we go to white dwarfs and then beyond that to neutron stars and black holes, <clears throat> there's speculation that matter can degrade, uh, especially when it's uh, very dense and also very cold, that you can have pure quark matter where essentially quarks are liberated a way that, in a way that's not seen in normal matter. Uh, so this can only happen at extremely high densities. Um, so people have speculated about the existence of quark matter in, in dense cores of remnant stars. Um, it's not clear how you would show that you detected quark matter because the quarks themselves don't lead to any particular uh, signature of electromagnetic radiation, so it's not clear what you would measure. Uh, diagnosing the nuclear state of property at the nuclear state of matter in a remnant star is also very difficult. We barely know how to measure what's going on with neutron stars. Uh, so it's a very interesting and well-posed speculation from physics that at the moment we don't know how to test. All right, thank you, Chris. Our next question is from Stiles Hoot Owl, who's on with us live, who asks, why does gravity seem to be the odd one out among the fundamental forces? Well, that's a very good question. So physicists who worry about these things, and there are a number, um, noted, note that in the different, the four fundamental forces of nature, which are, of course, uh, the electromagnetic force, the weak and strong nuclear interactions within atomic matter, and the gravity, that of those, gravity is by far the weakest. It's billions of, upon billions of times weaker than the next strongest force. And so in that one, in that way, it's the odd one out by being so incredibly weak. Well, it's also the odd one out in the sense that we've shown 
by direct experiment in accelerators that some of the forces do unify if you raise the temperature. So the electromagnetic and weak interactions were shown to be unified in the 1970s and 80s at CERN. Uh, and there's hints that unification, grand unification of the strong and weak nuclear forces and electromagnetism is, is plausible. That hasn't really panned out so much with accelerators, but it's strongly held by physicists that it would be the case. So gravity's the odd one out there too, because nobody's figured out a good theory or mechanism to unify gravity with the other three fundamental forces. Um, so it's a very, it's a philosophical question almost. Why is gravity so weak? Uh, why do we have four forces and why are they all the specific strengths they are? Um, you could ask it of the other forces, not just gravity. Uh, people who try to explain this, of course, have had to reach uh, for an underlying theory that pulls all the forces together and provides an explanation for the relative strengths. And that has typically been string theory in the last few decades. But there are other uh, contenders. Uh, none of those theories have been tested yet. So the simple answer is we don't know why gravity is so weak at the moment. All right. Um, the next question is from Shiraz Lakotia, who's on with us live, who would like to know about Einstein-Rosen bridges. Have we ever found any? And if we have, how do we know where the two endpoints would be? And would it be possible to send a spacecraft through one? Yeah. So these are, again, speculative space-time constructs where, or portals, if you like, between different places in space-time where you could uh, travel through space and actually forward and backward in time along an Einstein-Rosen bridge. So very exciting, if true. Um, so as with the question about white holes, there's, there's simply no way uh, we know of to look for an Einstein-Rosen bridge. We don't know what the observational signature of it would be. Um, it's hard enough to find black holes. There has only been a few dozen, maybe 50 black holes the mass of the sun found in binary systems so far after 50 years of looking. So it's, it's hard to diagnose these dense states of matter. So Einstein-Rosen bridges are a fascinating pieces of speculative physics that at the moment have, we have no way to, astronomers have no way to test. All right, sorry about that. The next question is from Karen D., who is on with us live, who would like to know, what is the likelihood of a fifth dimension? So lots of speculation questions today. Yeah. Um, it's certainly possible. A string theory, which is the current best candidate, but that's not to say it's had any great success so far, uh, for unifying the four forces of nature. The mathematical construct for that unification of the four forces in the context of string nature, uh, string theory, uh, postulates unseen dimensions, extra dimensions between beyond the three of space and one of time that are normal universe and general relativity. Um, so that would be extra dimensions, not just one, but maybe five extra dimensions. Um, and and the theory of those extra dimensions is called brain theory. So the idea is that our three dimensional universe, three dimensions of space is uh, just a subspace of a larger space brain, which may be four-dimensional or five-dimensional. So people have worked through the math of this, and they've even tried to work through ways we might possibly test whether these small extra, whether these extra dimensions exist. There are even some sort of tabletop physics experiments that are being proposed where extra dimensions might possibly manifest at, at scales that are uh, visible scales, like millimeter scales in the lab. 
if you can create the right conditions. So they're actually physics experiments that are trying to look for these extra dimensions um, in, a, in a sort of very fancy tabletop experiment. They haven't succeeded yet, but they're, it's fascinating that they even think it's possible to test the idea. All right, the next question is from email. Antonio Rodriguez Roldan um, asks, I have recently read about the Square Kilometer Array Project, but I don't know much about it um, other than the name. Uh, can you tell me what it is, where it will be located, and <clears throat> do you think it will be more powerful than the array that gave us the image of the first black hole? Yeah, the SKA is a is an improvement on the best radio interferometers, like the VLA, the very large array in the United States, by a factor of about a thousand. So it's a thousand times more sensitivity. Uh, it actually has many more dishes, hundreds of dishes. Uh, and the square kilometer array, it's not it's not a square kilometer telescope, if you like, but it has a central dense packing of dishes in some few kilometers and then it has a larger set of dishes distributed over hundreds or even thousands of kilometers so the whole telescope is a sort of continent-sized telescope um, and the receivers for this have been prototyped and tested and the array is under construction it's going to take a while it's a five billion euro project as far as i can tell the united states is a participant and player a major player but actually the europeans are are taking some lead on this too. Um, and so the SKA, as it's called, is in its prototype phase where individual dishes and prototype detectors or, or receivers have been built. Um, permissions have been obtained to put the whole thing together. The funding is going to flow over probably the next decade and the array will be finished by then. And it will provide dramatically better view of the radio sky than we've ever had before. So it's quite a spectacular project. All right. I think this is, we have time for maybe two more questions. Um, we have one from Shireas Lakotia who asks, what do you think will be the top agenda on the minds of astronomers and space agencies over the next century? Yeah. So that's a big question. Next century. Um, I don't know. I mean, for space science, obviously space exploration, I think the top of the agenda will be a colony on Mars. So a viable, sustained colony that doesn't have to be resupplied from the Earth, but it's independent of the Earth. Uh, that is definitely a long-term objective on a 50 to 100 year time scale. It should actually be doable. It's not beyond the reason that we could do it. So for um, So that's sort of for space exploration. For astronomy, it would be the construction of a truly massive telescope in space. Um, James Webb is, Hubble was a two and a half meter telescope in space. James Webb will be a six and a half meter telescope in space. But astronomers would love to have something even bigger than the biggest ground-based telescopes they're planning. So a 50 to 100 meter telescope in space, and maybe on the moon, actually. <clears throat> so that would be a, an incredibly grand astronomy project to plan for the long future. All right. Thank you, Chris. I think this will be the last question that we have time for today. Um, Ishwakwal Alam, who's on with us live, asks, what is unified field theory? So unified field theory is a sort of a compact term for the, the theory, the theory that physicists are struggling towards, which unifies all the forces of nature. And and removes essentially the arbitrary distinctions between the way electromagnetism operates 
uh, and gravity, with both of which are inverse square law forces of hugely different strengths, and the strong and weak nuclear interactions, which are both short-range forces that operate within the atom. They seem very different in character. Uh, a general field is a general word in physics used for an, a phenomenon that manifests uh, over a distance and propagates, like gravity or electromagnetism, or the force that holds the atomic nucleus together. Field is just the mathematical, physical description of these quantities. And a unified field theory would, of course, be one field that somehow explained all the four forces of nature. We Now, this is not to be confused with the Higgs field. The Higgs field is a field that uh, high-energy physicists understand now leads to mass, leads to the mass of particles by the detection of the Higgs boson a few years ago. The unified field theory is one uber field that accounts for all the phenomena in the universe and what we generally think of as four distinct phenomenologies of the fundamental forces. Uh, nobody knows what that unified field theory is going to look like. Einstein, as many people know, spent the last 20 years of his life pretty much fruitlessly searching for a unified field theory. String theory is one possible option for that, but it's been 30 years in running that people have been working on string theory and it hasn't proved the panacea that people hoped. So I think we're still looking for the unified field theory. And that is the end for this session. I appreciate your questions. Very interesting, very speculative, some of them, um, which is fun. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Um, meanwhile, uh, thank you for participating. And thanks to our helpers in the, in the studio. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, again, this is the team um, thanking you, all of the students and um, the public for participating. So I'm Matthew, Victoria, and Martine. We're all here helping out this morning. Uh, we hope that you have a great day. Take care. Thank you for listening. This has been a bonus episode of The Starfield. For more Q&A sessions with Dr. Chris Impey, head to Astronomy State of the Art. Or for other great space-based content from our team, check out Active Galactic videos on YouTube. This podcast is produced by Hannah Marker through partnership with Dr. Matthew Wenger, Dr. Chris Impey, and the University of Arizona.